You're listening to East Bay Yesterday. This show is about history, but it's not stuck in the past. Let's begin. Let's begin. Hey everybody, this is Liam. You're listening to East Bay Yesterday, and something really crazy just happened to me. My pants are still soaked, I'm sweaty, stink, and yeah. Okay, let's back up for a second. For the last couple weeks, all I've been thinking about is fire. It started because of the wildfires throughout California and all the smoke that we've been breathing and the way that I've been trying to process my fear and anxiety about these fires is by researching the Oakland fire of 1991, trying to understand how it happened here in the, in the town where I live almost 30 years ago. So I've been reading books about the Oakland fire, digging through old news articles. Last night I was up until two o'clock in the morning watching old video footage of people fighting the fire. And uh, my guests today are people who I've interviewed in the last week about their experiences. My first guest is a firefighter, a former firefighter for the East Bay Regional Park uh, District named Bill Nichols. And I also interviewed a woman named Risa Nye who wrote a book called There Was a Fire Here about her experiences losing her house and her entire neighborhood to the Oakland, uh, the, the fire of 91 that burned in the Oakland Hills and the Berkeley Hills. So that's the context for where my brain is at. And so I was just running some errands and uh, I was riding my bike along the bike path that goes along the channel that connects Lake Merritt to the Oakland estuary. And I'm coming up on the, uh, the bridge over, I believe it's 10th Street. And I look down and I see a fire. Uh, just to give you a sense of what this area is like for those of you who aren't familiar with it, right now it's mostly uh, homeless encampments and the, the grass is all brown and yellow and there's a lot of brush there. And so I, I look down and I, well, first I smell the smoke and then I look down from the bridge and I see a guy by himself, no shirt on, just him and his dog. And he's desperately trying to put out the fire that is spreading throughout these bushes with just like a piece of cardboard. He's using it to scoop up dirt and throw dirt on the fire. So the first thing I did was I called 911. Uh, I was on hold for like a minute or two. They patched me through the Oakland Fire Department. I told them where the fire was. And then my mind is racing. My sister's apartment is a couple blocks away from there. And I was just thinking to all those videos that I saw uh, last night of the people watching their homes go up in flames. And as you'll hear, the Oakland fire is the story of a fire that could have been contained earlier and ended up getting out of control and causing 25 deaths, over a billion dollars in damage, thousands and thousands of homes were lost. and. I just thought if there's any small role that I can play in helping to put out this fire before it grows bigger and becomes more destructive, I've got to do what I can do. So I ride down to where this guy was, throw my bike down, and I've got a water bottle in my backpack. And so I dumped the the small amount of water that was still in my water bottle on this fire that is by now kind of spreading through these bushes. The ground is smoldering. It's making its way up into a tree. The, the tree, like the bark is starting to smoke from the inside where you can kind of see like the smoke like pushing itself out through the cracks in the bark. And then 
I sort of started making my way down this kind of steep bank to fill up my water with water from the channel so I can pour it on the, fi the fire. And I do this a couple times, but we're not making a, a big enough dent. The fire is still spreading because it's kind of taking me a while to go back and forth and I'm trying not to fall in the water. And this guy's just got like a piece of cardboard and it's just the two of us and it's so dry and this fire spreading. And I'm getting more and more frantic with kind of scurrying back and forth to try to get water fast enough to help put out the flames. And that's when I fell in. And <laughs> falling in the water actually turned out to be the best thing that could have happened at that moment. Because as soon as I hit the water, I was like, okay, I'm wet now. It doesn't matter. I can just run over to where the fire is. And instead of doing this whole back and forth scurrying up and down the bank thing, I can just stand right underneath where the fire is, fill up the water bottle, chuck it on to the smoldering ground and the tree and the bushes. And that's what I did. You know, I'm knee deep filling up this my water bottle with this gross nasty water with like bird poop floating in it and then this dude who uh we t we were talking to each other he, his name was fred he had this giant pit bull i was handing him the water bottle so he could get the parts of the flames that i couldn't reach on the other side of the tree and he's kind of throwing it more against the tree so it'll get right in there the cracks where the fire is seeping out we're doing this for a couple minutes and then the as it's kind of starting to die down, we're finally starting to get a control of this thing. Once I was in the water, it was like a game changer. You know, we were just able to get so much water on the fire then. Um, the uh, the fire truck rolls up to the bridge and this guy yells down, is it out? And <laughs> I mean, it was still smoking. So I was like, the flames seem to be gone, but I had seen the flames popping up out of nowhere. Like it looked like they were gone at certain points and then they would just sort of shoot back up out of the ground again. Cause I think it's, there's like this dry, wood chips and stuff like that underneath the ground that can just heat up and combust. I yelled back at him, the flames are for now, but this thing is still smoldering. And then Fred yells, if you want us to keep doing this, you're going to have to give us a raise. <laughs> so we kind of look at each other. The fire guys are here. We've got it more or less under control for the time being. And I get out of the water and we shake hands, even though I know thinking back now with COVID probably shouldn't have done that, but uh, it just felt appropriate at the time and the fire guys started walking over and and we started walking away and and having that experience today fighting this relatively small fire that didn't end up destroying anyone's home didn't end up costing anyone their life didn't even end up causing any injuries that small taste of what it's like to come face to face with this force of nature, this force of energy gives me a whole new sense of respect for the people that are always out there putting their lives on the line. The people that are out there right now fighting some of the biggest fires in, in California history, the people that have been doing this for decades and, and the people that volunteer and put their lives on the line as well. So yeah, this episode is dedicated to them. That's all I'm going to say right now. Uh, I really need to take a shower and then I think do a shot of whiskey and then probably probably take another shower after that. I'm feeling pretty disgusting right now after being uh, knee deep in that water. But yeah, here's my interview with Bill Nichols. We conducted this interview last week on a very, very smoky day on the uh, ridgeline above where the Oakland Hills fire first started back in 91. Uh, we were standing on Grizzly Peak Boulevard near the intersection of Marlboro Terrace, and Bill was there from pretty much the very beginning of the day. 
on uh, October 20th. And here's the story. Still in their house. Kicking things off, can you introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your career? Yeah, my name is Bill Nichols. I'm a retired uh, park ranger and firefighter for East Bay Regional Parks. I started working there in 1981 and I just retired in 2015. You wanted to meet up here because this is where the tragic Oakland fire of 1991 really kicked off. What can you tell me about what we're looking at right now in relation to that fire? We're looking at the specific area between Grizzly Peak Boulevard and Highway 24. The original fire was on October 19th and there was a rekindle of that fire on October 20th. The uh, October 19th fire started on the, on the work site of a shed behind 7151 Buckingham Boulevard. And the workers were, were heating up their lunch with some wood shake shingles. And they started a little fire to heat their lunch and it got away from them. And it came up this extremely steep slope you see here with the pine trees in the middle right there below the green tank. And it became about a five acre fire. Just a quick note. Bill's knowledge of the origin of this fire is from his personal experiences talking to people on the scene. According to the official record, uh, the origins of this fire are undetermined. I should say no one was ever charged for starting these fires uh, intentionally or accidentally. And uh, I'm going to leave it at that and get back to the interview. It was hot, but there was no wind that day. About five or six different fire departments jumped on it very quickly and they had it out by by four o'clock that afternoon. The fire was mostly put out that first day. What happened the next day? First of all, to go back to the 19th, it was a, a five acre fire in the midst of a, a crowded urban neighborhood, as you, as you can see, looking out over this vista. Right, just to kind of paint a picture, the foreground in this canyon is pretty thickly grown with uh, pine, and uh, was, what do we got down here? Like manzanita? Pine and coyote out. brush and manzanita, you name it. But then beyond that, you can see dozens and dozens of houses just within a, a mile or two downhill of here and then the highway off in the distance. Yeah, you can hear the roar of Highway 24 in the distance. On October 19th, it looked just like it does now. By October 21st, there were only two houses standing in this entire valley. Then they were down there at the, on, on Buckingham Boulevard. So the night of the, of the, of the 19th, five-acre fire, there were thousands of feet of hose line left out here in place in case something happened. It was checked several times, apparently, but nobody was actually on the scene. And that brings us to the morning of October 20th. So like I told you, October 19th was hot, but there was no wind. The night of the 19th, we started getting winds in from the Great Basin. And in, in Southern California, they're called Santa Ana winds. Up here, they're called Fane winds, F-O-E-H-N. I've also heard them called Diablo winds. Is, yeah. that, is that the same Diablo thing? Diablo winds, I mean, uh -huh. what it is, it's a fire blowing from the wrong direction. It's a fire coming from the forest into the city, into the houses. 
the predominant wind here is off the bay, off San Francisco Bay, headed east. Yeah. This is definitely an anomaly. It happens, but it's pretty rare up here. And it seems like it usually happens this time of year, in the fall when conditions are the driest. And uh, it's really kind of the worst time for those winds, but this is when they happen. Exactly. That's, this, is, this is when they happen. So it just felt wrong, and it did. It felt really wrong. So Oakland sent a couple engine companies, that's eight people out here, to check the scene. And they got out here, and they found some hot spots, which are spots which have, uh, the wind was kind of bringing them back to life. It was like a bellows on a fireplace. And the previous day, they had put so much water on this hillside that some of my friends told me they had difficulty walking on the hill. It was so slick. But a lot of the hot spots were under pine trees, like the ones we're looking at. And when the wind started drying those pine, those pine needles out, they started sparking up little embers. And that's what was the, causing the uh, hot spots. So two Oakland engine companies come out here. They got a couple thousand feet to pick up. They started putting out the hot spots. And they got a chief officer out here, Chief Matthews, who was the incident commander of the fire when it first started. And the chief told, uh, called East Bay Park's dispatch because some of our hose was out here. And he, he requested, get your guys out here or their hose is going to burn up. They weren't really going to burn up. He just wanted some bodies on the ground yeah. to help out. He needed support. He needed support. So five of us came. We, and we met with the chief right at the green tank there. Okay. And he said, help my guys out. This is at 10 o'clock, 10 a.m. So you were one of the first guys on the scene after that initial group of Oakland firefighters. You came in as part of the uh, East yeah, Bay Regional five, Park District support for it. Okay. And so we go out there and three of us went down the hill and myself and another guy drove down to Buckingham and they called me to bring up a backpack pump, which is the little pump that you put on your back that has about uh, five to seven gallons of water in it. So I go up on the hill and right away there's shouts and I see flames everywhere and hot spots and I start running around the hill helping those guys, Oakland and our guys put out hot spots under pine trees. And uh, we look back across and on this east flank here, going all the way down to Buckingham, there was a hot spot right next to the edge of the burn. And myself and another guy went running over there and we put that out. And then we both looked up at the, up the hill. And when I was younger, I was in Vietnam. And I got the same kind of feeling I got there in a, in a couple of situations where the, the whole scene, smoke, the wind was blowing so hard, some of our guys were having problems standing up on the hill. It was, going, it was a good 30, 35, getting up to 40 miles an hour. I looked up at the, that flank, that east flank, and I called our duty officer and I said we need helicopters out here. You knew right away that this was a bad one. Yeah I could just feel it in my gut. Yeah. And uh, there was problems with the radio and and other things were going on. There was another fire on campus drive and, and Oakland was getting distracted out to there and then they were on the way back here and then I called again for a helicopter and the, our officer said we got people coming Bill there's people on the way. What I didn't know was the East Bay Parks helicopter was in Brioni's on a bicycle accident with the paramedic. 
This is a detail that many people don't know about that day. There's a couple other big fires in the area that there were a lot of air resources committed to. Up in uh, Franklin Canyon and Martinez area, and also at the geysers up, at, up north in Sonoma County. Big, big grass fires. So it was almost like if this was a Greek tragedy, Saturday was the rehearsal and everything went fine. But humans being humans in the force of nature or with the Greeks in the, in the face of the gods, we were arrogant and took it for granted and nobody stayed that night. And that morning there was not a full scale commitment to mop up or making sure everything was out here. Well, what you're saying kind of reminds me of what I was hearing a month ago, you know, regarding some of the big fires down in Santa Cruz or, or up north where one of the issues was just the firefighters being spread so thin that you can call in support, but if they're already on another fire, then that is uh, going to be challenging to yeah. divert resources from. Yeah, and they were diverted to, to Campus Drive, which is way down by Keller. But then that was nothing. It was in, So people were all going back in service and uh, getting back in their stations, getting ready to go. And then an ember blew out of the, out of the fire. If one finally got out into the unburned grass on this area and started burning down toward Buckingham. And that's when the fire started spreading beyond this canyon that we're looking at right now. Yeah, but there was a window there. You mean a window when it could have been contained? When it could have been maybe stopped down there. Where it killed everybody was right in that area that you're looking at right there. Except for one woman over on Alvarado on the Berkeley side. Everything else was right here. And what was it about this particular area that was so deadly? Was it because this was where it started so people didn't have enough notice to get out? There was hardly any notice whatsoever. And once it did get going, it, was, it created a separate reality. And what was that like? It was like we went through several phases. We tried to fight the first house, the first house that started on fire, which I, and this is one of the huge ironies of the whole thing, is that the first house that caught fire was the house where the initial call was on Saturday, 7151 Buckingham. And so we were so focused on that house that we didn't notice that this thing was really developing a life of its own. And I don't care what people say about eucalyptus trees. It's these things right here, man, these pine trees that created 95% of the havoc that I saw that day. It was just the damn pine needles. They were like little rockets and they, they'd catch on fire and they'd get up in the wind and they were gone. And people had pine needles in their gutters, their houses. I saw so many houses catch on fire from, the, from roof pine needles. Anyway, so well, I just want to uh, just uh, clarify something. It sounds like, you know, and I'm looking down here, I don't see any eucalyptus trees right in this canyon area in particular, but I know that on the other side of the highway or, you know, closer to the Claremont Canyon area as well, that there are a lot of eucalyptus trees and they did contribute eventually yeah, to those yeah, embers flying around, right? No doubt, yeah. yeah. They did contribute. But, I mean, this is just classic California firestorm scenario. Wind, wood-shake roofs, narrow streets, overhead power lines, and what was especially lethal up here was water tanks like that one, which are fed on a, on a relay system by electricity. And so once those power lines went down, the hydrants went dry, and there was no water to fight the fire other than what you had in the tank of your engine. 
So we were, we were with the chief, the chief that eventually got killed, Chief James Riley. He came down and took command down on Buckingham, where the fire was just getting generated and started was on Buckingham. Mm. Now, two Oakland engines did come there. Those, those two engines were critical in saving our butts. So the chief was down there with about maybe 10 of us trying to hold the line and stop the fire, and the first house was gone. And then at one point, he's yelling at us, we got to get out of here. It's on, it's on both sides of us, and it's behind us. we got to evacuate. And the Oakland guys took off with the chief, and they went up Buckingham toward Marlboro. And the chief got off at a street called Norfolk. He saw a woman that was in trouble there that was struggling, and he got off to help her, and they both died. Do you know what happened to him? Why wasn't he able to just pull her off the street and then, you know, jump back on the fire engine? There was fire on both ends. This engine kept going to evacuate people up on Marlboro. And there's famous video of a, one of the fire guys is beating on a hydrant with a fire tool and screaming at people to evacuate. That was the rig that the chief was on. He stayed to help the woman, and I think they got cut off at both ends by fire, and eventually a power line came down and killed both of them. Meanwhile, we're following these guys, and a transformer, a pole caught on fire, and the line came down and blocked us. So we had to turn around and come back down into, into this, which by that time was a conflagration. We're talking about 1140 maybe. Were you starting to be pretty worried about your own safety by that point? Yeah, I felt, a, you know what I felt? I felt a great sadness. I was thinking about my wife and my kids, and I thought, I was thinking to myself, damn, we cut this too close. We just cut it too close and now it's too late. And so we came down Buckingham. We came around a, a corner above tunnel and there in a wide part of the road with a hydrant were the two Oakland engines I just described to you. And we come down out of the smoke and flame. You couldn't even see the road. It was, it was just fire. And we, he said we came screeching out sideways out of the flames and there they were. And we stopped and we spilled out of our vehicles and he had every conceivable hose coming off of their rigs and off of the hydrant. And that's what we did for the next two hours, basically. While, the, while everything burned up here around us, blew over 24, and we had enough water and enough width, and we were able to get down low enough to where we saved two houses and ourselves. And then, so by this point, when you meet up with the other two engines and you're jumping back on the hoses to fight the fire, at that point, were you still worried about your safety and the safety of the guys who you were fighting this fire with? Or by that point, did you feel like you were in a safer position? We were in a safer position and we had no idea of the extent of this thing by then because that was our own little world right there. Yeah. And how big had it gotten by then? By then it had completely blown over Temescal and it was... Uh, into Rockridge. It jumped, it jumped the highway at that and point. Montclair, right? yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, so you're down here, you joined up with these Oakland guys. Take me through the rest of that day. What does that look like for the next couple hours? Our captain, his name was Jeff Davis. I mean, he, he's the one that had everything set up and he was just, every time I looked up from where, where I was on the ground, you try to get as low as you can and there's a little bit of air coming out of the end of a fire hose along with the water. And we just had our, we were just what they call it straight streaming, which is all the water you can get out of the end of the hose. 
onto the buildings and the brush and everything to try to save those two buildings. So the build, are these buildings already on fire? Or were you trying no. to, okay, so no. you're wetting them down. We're wetting them down. And one of them had made it through the big fire in, seven, in 1970, which happened up here. And the homeowner said he evacuated that one and he was not about to evacuate this one. So he helped us. <laughs> Bill with, with what, a garden hose? No, he was helping pull the hose. Oh, okay, I see, I gotcha. Yeah, so then, and the radios were just complete insanity. Yeah, what were you hearing on the radios? Just people yelling and stuff, which never happens, and nobody could get through because they only had a couple channels. And everybody was, oh, you can imagine what it was like. I mean, the Parkwoods apartments were on fire. It was just total chaos. And the Parkwoods, it's where those townhouses are now. You can see them down there. Yeah. The, they were actually right below our position. I know that this area of the Oakland Hills and you know stretching over in the Berkeley Hills has been prone to fire over the last century. And of course, we've seen massive wildfires in California, increasingly severe wildfires in the last couple of years. But back in 1991, this was unprecedented. No one had seen anything this big in Oakland for decades. And uh, this was really before this latest wave of wildfires that we're almost getting used to now, even though they remain just horrifying and tragic. So at the moment, did you realize you were seeing something new? How did it feel to be confronted with such a kind of unknown presence as a, such as a fire this big? We didn't have any, any of, the, of this knowledge that we're talking about now. Yeah. All we knew is we had just got through something. And then we started looking around and walking around and there was nothing, literally nothing standing in this whole canyon except for fireplaces. And how long did that take for that process to overtake the whole canyon here? There was one house burning every 11 seconds. By that time, our helicopter pilot had gotten overhead and he described it, him and his observer described it as somebody running down a dark hall, flipping on light switches. One every 11 seconds. When we were fighting this thing, we were down low and you could feel your ears. From, there were actually atmospheric shifts, which were causing our ears to pop. And you could feel like big things moving and crashing. And that was probably the, uh, the raised carports on a lot of these houses that were just burning and collapsing and appliances going downhill and cars and whatever. We were just at the bottom of the big black funnel cloud, man. It was just creating its own weather and, and we just stayed low and, and tried to do what we, were, what we could do. And we were fortunate to get out of that, very extremely fortunate. At what point was that decision made to pull back from there? What was what went into that decision? Were you relocated or was it just too hot to even stay here any longer? By that time, the power lines had come down across our hoses and we lost our water supply. So we did some forestry, some of our training. We did some backfire burning around one of the houses to get rid of all the unburned brush. And we did a lot of work with hand tools to create a, more of a defensible space. But by that time, the bulk of the fire, there was nothing else left to burn except there were fences on fire and some of the homes were still smoldering, that type of thing, cars. So the captain started getting concerned because we had six or seven civilians with us that had ended up in our spot as they were fleeing the fire. And so he made the decision 
that we had to get them out of here as soon as possible. So I had a four-wheel drive truck with a winch on it, and they asked me if, if myself and a civilian volunteer named Steve Snow, if we would help him find a way to get the civilians out. So we ran around the power line and went down tunnel above the old Parkwoods. And the Parkwoods by that time was just black smoke. It looked like the, the old videos of Pearl Harbor on for the battleships burning. That's what it was like in just extreme heat. And so we found a way all the way down to uh, Highway 24 to get them out, you know, to get them down to safety. And by that time, the, the uh, medical command center had been set up at Oakland Tech the lawn and the fire command center had had to relocate twice because of the spread of the fire and by this time they were at the Rockridge BART station <laughs> it was just and we were just in disbelief because we had no idea that this thing had spread so fast so then we came up to get the civilians and what we had noticed the first time was a couple of uh, uh, people that had been killed one on Charing Cross and one on Tunnel Road above the uh, Parkwoods. When you say you noticed them, did you do you mean that you heard about that on the radio, or did no. you actually see? We saw them. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And what we didn't know was that if you see where that white building is right there, yeah, that's Charing Cross Road. There had been a, a policeman that was working up here that was trying to evacuate people, a young uh, police officer named James Grubensky, and he went up Charing Cross and he got stuck there because of a vehicle had turned over, had gotten in a wreck. And there were a group of people standing there. And he gets out of his police car and you can hear the people talking in the background. And you also hear this roar in the background. And what that was, was the fire coming down the hill toward Charing Cross. And I think his last words were something like, I'm just in kind of a bad spot here. And he died and six of the seven civilians he was with died. And the seventh one happened to crawl into, into the gutter where there was some water from a broken hydrant or a burst hose, and he survived with severe burns. That was right above where we were. And we could hear him on his PA earlier, evacuate immediately, evacuate immediately. James Grabinski. So uh, the police officer right there and the fire chief, just a half mile away during the same period when all the other 99% of the victims were being killed. After you pull back from this area, what does the rest of your day look like? Because uh, I know that by this time, as you mentioned, the fire had spread over into the upper Rockridge area on the other side of the 24. It's, uh, it's going all over the place. How does this fire eventually get under control? The wind stopped. <laughs> that's it. That's, that's all I can tell you. I know they had contingency plans on the other side if the, if the woodshake roof of the Claremont Hotel had caught on fire. They were wondering where the hell are we going to stop this thing because if those shingles had gotten on fire, you can imagine what that wind would have done to Berkeley. I believe the Claremont Hotel is one of the largest wooden buildings in west the entire, of west on the, west of the west of the Mississippi, exactly, yeah. And that was a very, very close thing. The fire, the wind started backing down a little bit later in the afternoon, and it was saved. That fire would still be going if the wind hadn't stopped.
So you ask what we were doing down there? Yeah. We got the civilians out. The captain wanted to pick up the woman and take her down to the uh, to what was a makeshift morgue at Oakland Poly. Oakland Tech. Oakland Tech, I'm sorry. So he covered her with his turnout jacket and we put her in the bed of my truck and then we went down further and picked up the male that had died and he had a, he had a t-shirt on and we rolled him over to check his vitals and he had a t-shirt on that said shit happens. So we, we loaded him in the truck and we took him down to Oakland Tech and uh, gave him to the paramedics and the EMTs down there. Sounds pretty, uh, pretty traumatizing. What is it like to be up here today, almost 30 years later, reliving these events? It's hard, but man, I'm seeing a lot of the same conditions. Yeah. You know, the pine trees, the brush is totally, why don't they get goats in here? It's hot today, it's incredibly smoky. I think the air's quality is like up in the 150s, 160s, yeah. maybe even a little bit higher right now. And like you're describing, uh, we're looking down at a, a canyon just above dozens and dozens of structures. You mentioned earlier that you had uh, served in Vietnam. I'm just kind of wondering if your experiences there prepared you in any way for, for what you ended up dealing with uh, in Oakland that day. I was fortunate to have that premonition or that feeling that something was going to go sideways from a lot of the things I experienced. I was very young when I was there and the old timers looked out for me and taught me a lot of things and I was only 18. Were you in the Army or? I was in the Marine Corps. So a lot of that never leaves you. I mean, I, you know, I, I go into a lot of places now where I don't sit with my back to the door, that type of thing. Loud noises, you know, the, all the, you know, the drill. So there was that, and then there was the thing, the most valuable lesson I learned was that, man, you just keep moving. You just keep going no matter what. And that's what we did, and that driving that truck and getting off the hill, and, and we were able just, by the grace of God, just to go around that corner out of the fire, and there were those, those Oakland guys in that white space in the road. So the, the, by now we're like two or three hours into it, and we had what's called a floto pump. A floto pump is a portable pump you carry on your rig that you put in swimming pools or ponds, and you can get additional water because we were out of water. So we walked up the hill looking for a swimming pool. And right there at the first turn on Buckingham was a house with a swimming pool. And what we didn't know is two Oakland guys that had been there at the start had seen a woman up there just when they were leaving, so they went up there to get her out and it was too late. So they all jumped into the swimming pool and they had to pull the pool cover over them and the fire went right over the top of them and they all made it. And so we went up and put our, we had water again. Yeah. We got the pump going and, and we're just putting out odds and ends, burning trees, fence, fences, whatever. So the Oakland guys went back in service and they went on to fight fire for and do mop up for four days or whatever. Four of our, our guys left. And by this time, regional parks and Arinda had established a uh, command center right up on Fish Ranch and uh, Grizzly Peak. And they went up there and people were just aghast because they thought we were all gone. Several of them had been up here on Grizzly and they looked down there into that and said, They're, they kept trying to raise us on the radio and we couldn't hear anything. 
So four of those guys go up there, and then they got dispatched to come back down to Buckingham and Norfolk, and they uh, led the way into where the chief's body was, and they uh, tried to work on him, and, and he was dead, he and the woman. When I stayed with the homeowner, the captain said, stay with this guy and do what you can do. And I had picked up a couple of uh, Navy pilots at Oakland Tech that were looking to volunteer. And so they came up back with me. And we just stayed at the house until later that night and uh, made sure everything was out around the house and did what we could, you know, to make sure everything was safe. I was the last one out of the canyon. And that house is still there. <laughs> How soon was it before you returned to this area to see the aftermath? The next day. They sent us up here. They, man, I mean, we were here for four days and nights. We ended up going down to a little neighborhood farther down Grizzly and just standing by, basically, making sure they didn't catch on fire. And, and then here's the big difference between the fires now and the, that fire. The next day, about, about noon, it reverted back to a normal weather cycle. And the wind started coming in hard off the Pacific Ocean to the point where for the next three nights we froze our butts off up here. We were wet and that wind was hitting us and everything was foggy and dripping. And I mean, that wouldn't happen now. I mean, like the big fires, and I mean, they just keep going, man. The wind keeps going, they don't stop. I think it's a, a lot of it has to do with climate change. But that is what really helped us put a, literally put a damper on this whole thing was the, the huge change, the huge stopping of the wind and then the weather change. So what was it like when you came back the next day and saw what the fire did to this neighborhood and did to this canyon? What did you see and how did you kind of process that? I don't think I've still processed it. And it's 30 years later, there's just nothing standing. There was not a damn thing standing, except for those two houses. And some chimneys, right? And chimneys, and there would be uh, fires coming out of gas lines. You could hear the hissing and the burning and all that. And, and maybe some statuary or rock work or something like that, but that was it. Block after, I mean, this whole thing. Hiller Highlands, which you can't really see it here, it's the area that's overlooking the, uh, the complex of freeways. And that's where, at the base of the Hiller Highlands is where that fire memorial garden is. There was nothing there. It was completely obliterated within the first hour and a half of that fire. Many, many, many homes, just all gone. Were you worried when you heard that right away people were talking about rebuilding here and uh bringing the neighborhood back? Man, this place, when I was a rookie with the fire department, they would send us up here and make sure you know your, what street you're on and where you're at and stuff and be extremely careful in here. I mean, all over the Oakland Hills, all up and down Grizzly because of the fire history and the complications that we already talked about. I mean, you could drive down here now and I guarantee you, you're gonna come to two or three spots in the road where people are either double parked or illegally parked and the fire engine could not get through there. Luckily, they undergrounded most of the power lines and they made uh, wood shake roofs illegal. But there's a lot of the, the components are still here. The vegetation, the narrow streets, 
I don't know what they've done with the water system. Another thing that happened during that fire was a lot of the units that came in from other cities, their hoses wouldn't fit on Oakland's uh, fittings on the hydrants. They have a, spe a special hydrant, a special uh, fitting. Those have all been uh, adapted so other cities can, can plug right yeah. into them. And some of the streets have been widened, right? There has yeah. been some improvement in the, in the narrow streets and the twisty streets and things of that nature. Yeah. yeah, there's been some improvement. But it's human nature, man. And the California thing is we're on the outside of that, uh, the California collective memory phenomenon where something will happen in Malibu or up north in the forest or here, where people are li literally living in paradise. There's a huge catastrophe. And then they're rebuilding and moving back in there again. You know, Paradise, California has had to be re-evacuated two more times in the last two months after the 2018 conflagration up there. It's just, it's just Cal the California dream, human nature. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was doing some research last night and talking. It, uh, the um, article was talking about uh, basically like a tax that wasn't approved by voters, an Oakland fire control tax, essentially, that would have gone into uh, fire prevention methods. And th I believe it was um, it didn't reach the threshold. It needed two thirds of the vote to pass. And it, I think it fell about like a percentage or two short. And one of the theories is just that by that time it had been over 20 years since the fire and people's memories were getting a little hazy. And there's a lot of people living in Oakland now who hadn't lived here during 1991. And they just don't think it can happen. No, no, it can't happen here. Here's what needs to happen. One of the fire victims that day was a young 18 year old uh, Cal student named Seagal Livna who was studying Sunday, late Sunday morning up in her parents' home in Hiller Highlands. And when the fire got up there, and when it got up there, like I said, the whole world was on fire. And she looked out the, her window and called Oakland Dispatch and they, they really didn't know what to say to her. And they said, they told her just to stand by and go outside, we'll be there. Because they had nothing else to say because they knew that there was absolutely no way they were gonna. And she died and she died in the fire. And uh, that dispatcher had a real difficult time for many, many years, I've heard, because of that uh, conversation. But there was literally nothing he could do. In December of that year, there was a big meeting, I think in a big auditorium in Oakland somewhere, where all the fire victims and the survivors, Oakland had their whole command staff there and the chief and everybody. For, it was basically an explanation of what had happened in a question and answer period. But after that meeting was over, a woman came up to the chiefs. They were all in a group. And she said, why did you let my daughter die? I'll never forget the look on these chiefs' faces. They could not answer this woman. Not a word. And so she, they weren't even able to give her the consolation of saying it was quick or there was absolutely nothing we could do, ma'am. We're, you know, we'll think about that for the rest of our lives and just dead silence. And she walked, and then she just turned and with her head down and walked away sobbing. And the, her name was, the girl's name was Seagal Livna. She was the youngest victim along with another young girl named Martha Reed, who was also 18. And she was trying to drive out of it and she got stuck and that was it.
I just want to uh, apologize on, on behalf of all of us that were up here that Sunday morning for not putting this thing out. Man, we had it in our grasp. And uh, for whatever reason, it just did not get done. And I, from the bottom of my heart, I apologize to the those people that lost their homes and the, the people that died up here. Well, Bill, I know you did your best up here, so I don't think you can blame yourself for what happened that day. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. And the, there were small victories, but overall it was a dark, dark day for, for the fire community and for the people that lived in these communities up here. Well, I hope that hearing this conversation will help people understand what happened that day and also maybe um, start people thinking even more, or give people some insight, I should say, into uh, you know how we can prevent something so tragic from ever happening again. Thanks so much for joining me up here at the uh, site where the Oakland Hills fire started in 1991. Um, really, really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thank you, Liam. Once again, big thank you to Bill Nichols, formerly of the East Bay Regional Park District, for taking the time to share those memories with me. If you want to see some photos that I took of Bill during our interview up on Grizzly Peak Boulevard, you can find them at eastbayyesterday.com. Now, just a few quick notes before we jump into my conversation with Oakland-based author Risa Nye. First, Throughout this episode, I've been calling it the Oakland Hills Fire. Although some people call it the Tunnel Fire or the East Bay Hills Fire, I just want to say, I mean, absolutely no disrespect to anybody in Berkeley who was affected by the fire. It's just that the vast majority of the area burned was in Oakland. So that's what I'm going with for this episode. And also, I just want to give you a heads up that we conducted this next interview outside as well. And I was wearing a mask. So if I sound a bit muffled, or you can hear dogs barking or train whistles and things like that in the background, uh, that's why. Okay, so Risa Nye. You can find more of her writing at risanye.com or at the NOSH section of the Berkeley Side website. But today, we'll be focusing on a memoir she published a few years back. Here we go. So your book is called There Was a Fire Here. And um, I have to admit, one of the reasons I read it and why I wanted to talk to you is a little bit selfish. Like many Californians, I've just been feeling racked with anxiety and dread after having spent the last month indoors with the windows closed and looking out at the smoke-filled skies and not only knowing what's already out there, but what is likely ahead in our future. It seems like in terms of wildfires in California, it's not a question of, uh, if it's a question of when, and it seems like they're getting worse and worse. And one of the ways that I deal with my anxiety is by trying to understand my fear. And I think that what you went through back in 1991 in the Oakland Hills fire is about the worst thing that, in terms of fears, you know, one of the worst things that people can confront short of losing a family member or a neighbor or a loved one. Um, as, you know, 25 people did die in the Oakland Hills fire, Fortunately, you didn't lose any immediate family members, but you lost your house, all your belongings, and your entire neighborhood burned down. But before we get into the actual fire itself, let's take a step back and start at the beginning. How did you and your family come to live in the Oakland Hills in the first place? 
We came, um, when my husband and I first got married, we lived in Albany. And then he got a job as a brand new lawyer in San Jose. So we lived in San Jose for about a year and a half. And then his firm decided to open an office in San Francisco. And we were so happy to move back to the Bay Area. <laughs> so, I mean, to the East Bay. So we moved back to Oakland in um, the late 70s. And then we um, moved to the Oakland Hills in 1980. I remember that because I was very pregnant at the time. <laughs> uh, my husband and I both grew up in the East Bay, so we were very happy to come back. And for people that aren't familiar with the area of the Oakland Hills uh, where you live, the part that was affected by the fire, can you describe that neighborhood a little bit? Like, what is the terrain like? What were the houses like back then as well? Paint a picture for us. Well, yeah, the neighborhood is called the Upper Rock Ridge, and it was a um, kind of an architectural mishmash. There were, you know, English Tudor styles, there were old hunting lodges, there were little stucco houses. I mean, every house was different. A lot of the houses on my block were so hidden by trees, unless you went up there when the kids were trick-or-treating, you wouldn't know what they looked like. It was a variety of different styles, and some of them were quite old. And when you moved in, did you know anything about the history of the area in terms of fire dangers or uh, the fires that had occurred kind of throughout the Berkeley and Oakland Hills in previous decades? I have to say I did not. Yeah. I didn't know anything about the uh, previous fires. Yeah, yeah. So then what about that day? It was October 20th, 1991. You wake up. What happens next? When did you first realize that maybe something dangerous was a foot uphill from your house? Well, it was a, a Sunday morning, and uh, my husband and I were doing what we like to do on Sunday morning. We're reading the newspaper and drinking coffee, and uh, looking outside to our backyard, I noticed bits of ash swirling around, and it was very windy. And we stepped outside and smelled smoke and decided we would check it out and find out what was going on. So we both, the two of us, left the kids in the house, said, we'll be right back. We walked up the hill up Broadway Terrace and could see up by Hiller Highlands that the hills were on fire. You know, black smoke up in the sky and it was very scary. We said to ourselves, that looks bad, but it's not going to jump the freeway. I mean, you can't jump six lanes of the freeway. So we decided we would walk back home and on the way back down the hill, we said, what are we going to take? We're going to leave. Just that fast. I mean, we just talked ourselves right out of delaying the decision. So we walked back to our house, very quickly started thinking, okay, what are we going to bring? And uh, telling the kids we're going to go. And uh, my neighbors up the street said, are you guys leaving? We said, yeah. <laughs> so they said, I guess we better start packing too. I'm wondering because you mentioned that at first you were doubtful that the fire would be able to cross the freeway and you felt like it was, it was a big fire but it was kind of far away. So how did you come to that decision so quickly to evacuate? It just happened organically. I mean, we were just saying, yeah, that, that, that doesn't look like it's going to come here. And then a block later we said, we're getting out. Because I had young children mm -hmm. and the children were starting to freak out. Um, they how, old, how old were your kids then? Well, the, the youngest one... Um, was in kindergarten. He just started in kindergarten, so he was, you know, five. 
and the older two were, um, they're five and a half years older and eight and a half years older, so do the math. One was in fifth grade, one was in middle school. Um, they started to worry. And actually my, my older son was at a friend's house, wasn't even home. So um, we went and picked him up and then just started throwing stuff in the car and didn't have a plan and we didn't have a go bag. Nobody knew what a go, you know, didn't have a go bag. And so that was the middle of the afternoon when we left. Now in 2020, when I think people are threatened with wildfires, they sort of know what to expect a little bit more because it's been in the news so much, they've been so frequent lately. But in 1991, especially in Oakland, I mean, this isn't deep in the forests of California. This is basically a suburban slash urban neighborhood. Um, Although, you know, of course it does border the East Bay Regional Parks along the ridge there, you know, which is full of full of trees, and then there's a lot of trees in Claremont Canyon as well. But getting back to the question, what was your frame of reference for dealing with wildfires? What was your expectation about what you might be facing at that time when you were preparing to evacuate? I'll tell you, it was something that did not exist in my imagination that a fire could do what this fire eventually did, you know, travel that far and burn that fast. There were a lot of trees in the neighborhood, as I mentioned. Some of the houses were so deep in the trees you couldn't see them. So there was vegetation, probably too close to the houses, but um, with that wind carrying all those uh, sparks and cinders and stuff, it was just like they describe it now, it was the perfect storm. It created its own weather, and the wind just carried those embers Uh, So, no, I had no conception of what could happen. I just, when you're faced with a reality like that, you see this on TV all the time. People said, I never thought this would happen to me. I never thought this would happen to my neighborhood. To think you live in an urban part of town, not on the edge of the wildland interface. Um, That, first of all, that, that could happen and that could happen so fast. So speaking of how rapidly the fire approached your home, when you were preparing to evacuate, what did you grab and how did you decide what to grab? What was what was racing through your head when you were figuring out, you know, what are we going to throw in the trunk of our car before we head up to my in-laws place? Yeah. Well, we took we uh we did old school photo albums cuz that's what people did. We didn't we didn't have cell phone cameras so we had back then the cloud was just that thing in the sky (laughs) yeah it was just a cloud um yeah and so we didn't have um ways to store photographs other than to have physical photographs you know so we we had all these albums you know my husband and i met in high school we had photographs dating back to our senior year in high school you know we went way back you know early years of our marriage you know the babies and all that stuff so we grabbed all the binders and put them in the car. I had just received, I think the year before, a leather jacket my husband got me. So I didn't would take the leather jacket. It was a hot day. I mean, I, well, why did I grab that leather jacket? Because it meant a lot to me. I brought that. Um, my daughter, who was a very conscientious student, grabbed her textbooks. She grabbed her Birkenstocks because she would paid for those with her own money. <laughs> she wanted to take those. Um, and then uh, maybe uh, a toothbrush. I mean, we just didn't, we thought it was a fire drill. Mm-hmm. We did not think we would not be coming back. And I, I did take my, my young son's little favorite quilt. 
but the, the, the cat blanket gets a whole chapter in the book because nobody remembered to bring my older son's cat blanket that he was very fond of. So, um, honestly, everything we had fit in the back of my car. We yeah. did not bring that much stuff. I believe in your book you write that it was a few days, at least a day or two, before you were able to return to the neighborhood to assess whether or not your house was standing. What was it like to return to your neighborhood? What were you expecting to see and then what were you eventually confronted with when you, when you got there? I wrote in the book that I ran into one of my neighbors down on Broadway, on Broadway behind the police barrier there because we didn't know at that point if our house was gone or not. We would watch the news, but they, they never showed a street sign, so we didn't know. And the whole area was cordoned off, right? Like yeah. people weren't allowed to go no, back. No, I mean, I know people snuck in, but we did not. And so we decided I would go. And the police would uh, take two or three people in a car and drive us up to, to our, our block to see the damage. But I did run into this neighbor who'd lived up the street. She was one of the older neighbors on the block. And she said, I'll never forget this, she gave me a big hug and said, oh honey, it's all gone. And so the police car took us up the hill, up Broadway Terrace. And honestly, when I saw what was left of my house, my, I thought I was gonna be sick. I, I could not prepare for what I saw, which was nothing left standing, basically. And the mailbox was standing, but um, the house had collapsed onto itself. And you could see right through it, you know, and the burned out hulk of our uh, dishwasher and the washing machine and the bed springs. I mean, anything metal like that, there was just skeletons of stuff. You write in one section that your husband had had a gold watch that was a family heirloom that he'd inherited and when he went looking for it he realized that the fires got so hot that the gold would have actually melted yeah yeah everything melted yeah, yeah. so basically nothing left then like i said um <laughs> inside the dishwasher there were some ceramic coffee mugs because those didn't burn, and then this this sculpture, this artifact that I also write about. Um, it must have been a bunch of glass glasses inside the dishwasher that melded into each other, and there's a spoon in one end, and the impressions of a fork in it. So we we took that, and that is known as the artifact. <laughs> it's actually beautiful in its own in its own way yeah. I see that you've brought some newspaper clippings here are these clippings from the week of the fire or yeah. what, are, what are these uh, what yeah. is this coverage of this is um, I saved a number of um, sections of the San Francisco Examiner um, and there are pictures of my friends and neighbors in here and then there's a map of which, you know, which houses burned and which houses didn't. And people that lived in, the, in that area will remember there'd be a whole block gone, but one house standing. No rhyme or reason. Um, Just seems so arbitrary. arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very arbitrary. The, the thing that you notice the most from all these pictures is that 
anything that was made of stone or brick survived. <laughs> so you see a lot of chimneys yeah. and, I mean, and brick walls. Looking at that photo, it's reminding me of a section where you write about talking to your neighbor who was a World War II veteran who said that it smelled like Dresden. Of course, referring to the infamous uh, firebombing raid that just leveled the city in Germany during World War II. Yeah. And that's what it looks like too. I mean, it literally looks like it was bombarded with uh, bombs or something like yeah. that because it's just completely leveled from these aerial photographs. And this is the Phoenix Journal. One of my neighbors uh, started this, this newspaper that came out periodically and, you know, a lot of people wrote for it and there are ads in here for rebuilding and drywall and, you know, all the kinds of construction stuff that people needed classified ads, people reaching out. Well, and I just want to read this headline real quick. It's oh. Double Jeopardy Holocaust Survivor. And what does it say? And the October Fire. Yeah, so, wow. people who survived the Holocaust who lost everything again. Again. Um, yeah. There were a lot of artists and writers who didn't manage to save their manuscripts or paintings or photographs um i know i read i you know i saw the writer maxine hong kingston speak years ago and she mm -hmm. talked about losing a draft of a novel yep. there's another story of a woman who was writing a book about her daughter who had passed away um from anorexia i believe who lost that writing project um are you familiar with that story not that one i know mm -hmm. about maxine hong kingston yeah. Yeah. and um and photographers and painters sort of a sidetrack, but what I learned during my research for my book is that the Ohlone that lived here years ago would routinely set the hills on fire. And then they would come back in the spring and everything would, you know, rejuvenate and come back. And that was, people decided, no, that was a bad idea. <laughs> and so we end up with all this stuff on the ground that it's going to burn. Right. And I mean, if you look at photos of like for example the claremont hotel which is right at the base of where the the oakland fire took place in 91 if you look at photos of it from the early part of the 20th century those hills were all grasslands there were no trees up there and so just a totally different ecosystem that was acclimated to yearly or seasonal fires right. as opposed to now when it just builds up and builds up and builds up until eventually there's lightning or high winds or you know just one little spark is ready to set the whole thing ablaze but getting back to your your story, I want to talk about the recovery process because that's kind of what the ma book mainly focuses on is sort of rebuilding after this this tragedy. Mm -hmm. How do you even start? You're just about to turn 40 years old. I think the fire happened about a month before you turned 40. You've got three kids. You've got a job. Right. Your house is a pile of ash and rubble. What is like the first step or what are the first steps you take mentally and just logistically to kind of start rebuilding from there? Well, my husband and I had a very brief, very brief conversation about, okay, so the house is gone. Do we want to rebuild where we were? And we decided, yes, we did. So that was number one. Number two was where are we going to live for now? Because we stayed with my in-laws, but you know, with five people and a bird, you know, I mean, it was a big imposition. <laughs> so a good friend of mine, tracked me down to my in-laws and said she had moved out to Orinda. She'd been a neighbor in Oakland, had moved out to Orinda, to Moraga actually, and she had said, uh, you're never going to find a house big enough to rent in Oakland. you got to get out here. I have a friend who could show you some houses. Do it. 
So my husband and I, we did. We left the kids. We drove out through the tunnel um, where I never wanted to live. We drove out through the tunnel. We looked at several houses and there were cars pulling up right behind us of other people that looked just like us. We were like zombies. And we saw this one house. The address was like our birthdays. And so I said, okay, that's an omen. We'll go this, with this one. I mean, this is how our decision-making process was going. So we just signed a paper. We discovered you could rent furniture, you know, so we went and um, boom, boom, boom. This happened really, really fast. We just needed our kids to feel safe. And um, like mom and dad have it covered, even though we didn't really feel like we had it covered, but we put on a pretty good show. So we rented furniture. Um, we started calling people to find out what do we do now, called our insurance company, you know, set up a meeting. We found it. We'd had our house remodeled. We just had it the way we liked it, you know, just redid the kitchen. All this stuff had happened within, you know, a couple of years, 89, I think was the kitchen. Called the contractor. He put us in touch with an architect. We were just moving. And in the meantime, though, we had to buy underwear and socks and toothpaste. I mean, we had, you know, we had to do basic, basic, basic stuff. So once we moved into this house, everything you need, you don't have. <laughs> so who's going to make dinner tonight? Oh, wait, we don't have a pot. You know, di we, don't, we had to go through all of that stuff. Um, I think you mentioned that you ate a lot of pizzas that year. We did. <laughs> <laughs> Just because, you know, kids need food and you need food. And we started having a weekly scheduling meeting once we kind of got settled because there were carpools, there was who's got after school this or that, and we had to make sure that no kid got left behind. Nobody got stranded at school, <laughs> or uh, I didn't double book appointments, you know, because I was driving around meeting, and I, I said, all I need is a telephone and a bathroom, really, that's, those are the basics to get all these things done, because I spent a lot of time in my car. Yeah. Um, so, you know, people go, oh, you got to get all new clothes and all new shoes. And I have to say, as someone that likes to shop, there wasn't a lot of joy involved in that kind of shopping. You know, I mean, it was like, I need this, it's, I need that. I, I'm not going to linger and, you know, you just point and grab. And, and the stores were very accommodating, I have to say. I mean, the community itself, also very accommodating, very helpful. Backing up for a second, it sounds like you made the decision to rebuild on the same site pretty quickly. How did you come to that decision? There must have been some hesitation to rebuild in this area that you know was prone to fire. <laughs> that that really didn't enter into our thinking at that point because all the trees were gone. I mean, it, right. all the risk, it seemed like, all the risk factors had burned away. We lived across the street from the kids' elementary school. Mm -hmm. My two boys were going to school, and we thought, yeah, we love where we live. As I mentioned, we're both East Bay natives. Where else would we go? I mean, we just didn't even consider it. We, that was our first house we ever bought. And so we felt very um, tied into that community and the school and the neighborhood. Honestly, it really was a very short conversation. Yeah. Do you still live there now? We do. Yeah. We still live there now. Yeah. We still love the house. Do you have fear now that a lot of the trees have grown back and we're constantly 
being bombarded with news of wildfires throughout California and every other week now there's like a red flag warning and every time the, the winds pick up I think everyone gets a little tense. What is it like for you now to kind of live in this house that's already burned once and seeing these dangers all around? Yeah, my husband and I had a, a full and frank discussion, you know, I guess a couple weeks ago when the air was so smoky and there were a couple of flare-ups here and in the, in the area. And um, we did both spend a half a day putting go bags together and talked about a strategy. And since our kids, are both our sons are in the Bay Area, uh, I said, if you guys need to evacuate, you can come here. If we need to evacuate, where are we gonna go? And we had to come up with a place to go. But the whole put the go bag together, um, it's different now because we have phone chargers, we have medication, <laughs> you know, we have electronic devices that keep us connected. Whereas the old Rolodex, which I still have, by the way. Um, so it's a different uh, way of looking at things. But yeah, definitely have the go bag. And I think that, you know, it's been our pattern to imagine the worst case scenario you know, look into the belly of the beast and to say, okay, if we had to do it, this is what we would do. And then hope for, hope we don't have to deal with it. One thing that you, that you mentioned in the book is how a kind of counterintuitive outcome of losing everything in the fire was, in a way you felt like a sense of freedom. It's kind of a chance to start from scratch. There's like the old expression, like when you've got nothing, you've got nothing to lose, right? <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about that, like the kind of conflicting emotions around having this kind of blank slate ahead of you, you know, as you um, hit this, this milestone of your life, turning 40? Imagine if you were free from all the baggage in your life right now, whatever that baggage is. If you were surrounded by things that, to quote, a famous organizer, don't spark joy. Um, things that you've been meaning to get rid of or things you're tired of or things like that. Suddenly it's a blank slate. And I found that very freeing in a way. Um, just not having to deal with the stuff anymore. And after a lot of years of marriage and raising a family, we, we did have a lot of stuff. And just being freed from stuff for even just a short period of time, it just felt like floating in a way. I mean, that was the one positive thing, I think, was just feeling unburdened by... And I know that sounds terrible because I have a home and a lot of people do not. But for me in my life, that's that was the experience uh, for me was feeling just a little bit untethered from things um, before we had to get down to business of then acquiring stuff. <laughs> yeah, starting it all over again. Yeah. Speaking of these kind of unexpected uh, emotions or reactions that people had after the fire, you also mention how some of your neighbors, or you talked to one neighbor specifically whose house survived. And when you asked her if she felt lucky that her house survived, she said, not really. What was that like hearing? It must have been, I, I mean, that must have just brought up a lot of conflicting emotions for you. And then how, why, why would she say something like that? Well, I'll tell you why, because her house was one of the few that were left standing on my block. Mm -hmm. So here she is living in a moonscape alone. I mean, all the neighbors had fled. 
And then people started to rebuild. So there was all this noise and trucks and everything. I mean, I understood what, what it, it must have felt like to her, but from where I was coming from, um, I would say this was a hardship, I agree. Mine was a different kind of a hardship, but she felt like her whole, the, her whole world around her was, was gone, and it was very isolating to be the only one left on the block. And then, you know, was there survival, survivor guilt? I think some people felt that at first, but then the tide turned a little bit, and I wrote about that as well. I believe you called it survivor envy. Yeah, can you really. can you explain what that means? Yeah, I mean, people were, oh my God, I'm so lucky, you know, I didn't lose my house. And then people started building these houses and getting all new things, and they're like, damn it. <laughs> you know, like I could, <laughs> I really wanted to redo my kitchen, you know. But the new houses were a lot bigger than the old ones in, in many cases. A lot of them were a lot bigger. Um, but again, it's interesting that what people chose to rebuild was another kind of mishmash, architecturally. You know, you have the Italian villa style, you know, and the Tudor style, and the very modern boxy style, and everything in between. And, and there were no trees to hide them anymore, so you just would drive around and go, oh my God, <laughs> you know, like, look, look at this. But yeah, I think some people were, you know, there they are in their little old house from the 40s or whatever it was, wishing, well, you know, I have to start over too. And there was a certain amount of resentment in the months and years that followed. For anybody that hasn't taken a walk around the uh, Upper Rock Ridge area in recent years, uh, there's a great book called Secret Stairways of the East Bay. And there's a couple stairway walks that, that walk around this neighborhood. And when you take these strolls through the area that was affected by the fire, it's very obvious to tell which houses survived the fire and which houses were built uh, in the 1990s. It's just uh, really night and day in terms of the architecture. But I know part of the recovery process for you involved cataloging every single possession that your family owned in order to file the insurance claim. And I see that you've brought a massive <laughs> single-spaced printout document here of every possession that your family of five owned at the time of the fire. So can you read me some of these things on this list and just describe what, would it, what it was like to try to mentally recreate everything in your house in order to file this claim? <laughs> well, <laughs> ironically, my husband had given me a book in the summertime about decluttering your house. And so I had gone through the house and basically got rid of a lot of things. But we, they had, the insurance form had like a, a rubric or, you know, a chart like, okay, socks, underwear, you know, books, all that kind of stuff. So they gave you the, the categories. And then I had to come backward and try to figure it out. I mean, the top page here is my husband's tools. So everything that it had in his toolbox, you know, crescent wrenches, pliers, um, hammers, clamps, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then this is my son's bedroom, my younger son's bedroom, um, with all the stuff that he had in his room. <laughs> so, you know, he had little cars and trucks, he had Legos, he had a lunchbox, he had a music box. Um, 
also include some of your neighbor stories in your book. There was a fire here. Like you mentioned uh, uh, a neighbor, a husband who saved his wife's strapless bra from the fire, but no family photos, interesting choice. <laughs> or uh, another neighbor who saved his wine collection by throwing all the bottles into his pool, but and the wine survived, but all the labels came off. So he was just drinking mystery wine for the next couple of months. He had no idea what wine had been attached to what label. Yeah. What other stories do you remember most vividly from, you know, the people that you were talking with in the, in the months after the fire? Well, um, kind of a funny one. My, my neighbor had um, left for the day to go do something or other and had left a turkey in the oven. And she was driving home and saw the smoke and she thought, oh my God, my, my turkey guy. <laughs> she thought it was her, you know, that, that she started the fire and stuff. So she was happy to find out that it was not her fault. Um, but I think the most poignant story was the uh, a woman I, I ended up having lunch with or coffee with or something. Back in those days, uh, people that you would meet would say, um, did you lose your house in the fire or, you know, did you, did you burn? You know, I mean, it was just a thing. People said, yeah, or no. And then you'd say, what, you know, what was your experience like? And this woman had been up in the pool at Hiller Highlands with a, with an older woman that they'd both been swimming. They'd been changing in the locker room and didn't hear, get out, evacuate. And they came up and the whole place was on fire and they jumped in the pool. She was describing this to me and I couldn't, I just, couldn't imagine they would, you know, put towels over their heads, go under the water, so their hair didn't burn, you know, I mean, they, they would go under, hold their breath as long as they could, come up for air, and go back under, and, to, and the fire just, you know, f flew overhead until it was safe for them to leave. Unbelievable. She showed me her car keys. The key didn't melt, but the thing that the key ring had, and she said, yeah, this is, you know, and, um, they were in that pool for hours, you know, it seemed like forever. Yeah. But she, I'll never forget this, she had a, a daughter who was with a family member for the morning, and she said, I remember thinking, I have to live for her, I have to live. And just kept going under the pool, under the water to save her life, and I just thought, that's an incredible story. Yeah. I think a thought that crosses everyone's mind these days when you see fires sweeping through neighborhoods so quickly is people ask themselves, what would I do if I was in this scenario? Um, you and your husband chose to evacuate your family. Seems like a very good decision. Your house burned down. You, uh, you know, survived to rebuild and live another day and all your kids were safe. More than two dozen people died in the fire. And some neighbors stayed behind to stand up on their roofs and try to hose things down. Some of them succeeded in protecting their property. Others didn't. Is there anything that you would say to people faced with a decision like that now? If people are, are in their house and they smell smoke nearby or they're getting these warnings to evacuate, what is the, the calculus that, that they should be aware of coming from someone who's actually lived through this? Yeah, my advice is to leave. You know, I mean, there there was a guy around the corner who built that house himself with his own hands. And he was going down with the house, you know. I mean, he stayed there on the roof with the hose, saved the house. But he was really prepared to go with the house. And I, I would say your life 
is more important than the house, you know, more important than the house. So yeah, I mean, people that hesitate, especially where you're remote and there's one way in, one way out, you got to get out. Don't delay. And we left hours before the house burned. I found out later because a friend told me I, she watched it burn and knew exactly when uh, it burned. So we did have time, but honestly, the kids were getting anxious. My first thought was to get them out of harm's way, even if harm seemed far away. And it turned out it really wasn't that far. So um, yeah, I would say, don't try to be a hero, leave. Having your house burn down and losing all your possessions and having to start from scratch is the epitome of a life-changing experience. Looking back almost 30 years later, how did it change your life? Oh, that is such a big question. Um, people used to say there was an old expression, life begins at 40. And for me, I think a different life did begin at 40 because suddenly uh, I was responsible for a whole lot more stuff. I've been going along, working, raising kids, being a wife and mother and worker and neighbor and all that. and. Um, things were kind of on an even keel. And so when things got turned upside down, um, suddenly I had to get a lot more detail-oriented and a lot more regimented about scheduling and what was going on every day. I talked about we had our weekly meetings and mark it on a calendar, and it was just like a call to attention. Not that I was a slacker before that, but I mean, it was a different uh, pace of life. Um, had to uh, stay focused a lot more. And I was in charge of a lot of stuff that I hadn't been in charge of before. So it was more management than I was used to. And uh, I didn't always live up to the task. I mean, I had moments like anybody would. But for the most part, I think it was definitely a shift in where I had to put my energy and my attention. And um, realized that nothing was ever going to be the same. Although one thing that did return unexpectedly from your previous life was the daffodils. Yeah. That's one of my favorite parts of the book is how you talk <laughs> about how this totally unexpected occurrence happened. You look through the ashes on the ground and sure enough the following spring mm -hmm. these daffodils were, were poking back up through the, through the blackened soil. Yeah. Were there any other surprises like that? Or like, what was that like to see kind of the neighborhood starting to regrow and, and blossom again? Well, yeah, we had um, a mockingbird that would serenade us in the morning. You know, a mockingbird would run through its repertoire of, of bird sounds and, and car alarms and, you know, all the things that they do. And when the bird came back, that, that was really a moment just having birds around, because there were no trees. No trees, no birds. And we'd had a lot of birds, so that was nice. But yeah, the daffodils, um, when we, we first looked at the house, it was February, and the daffodils, because springtime, you know, it starts early, the daffodils were there, and they were so evocative of spring, and then, I thought we'd seen the last of them. And then <laughs> we started building in May, I think we broke ground in May or June. 
And so that following February, the, the daffodils came back, and they came back for years after that. And then we finally kind of redid stuff in the front. We replanted things and all that. But um, yeah, that was such a, um, a beautiful, symbolic moment to see that nature bats last, you know? And so here come these beautiful daffodils. Yeah. It's just really a good example of how resilient life can be. And uh, I'm just thinking too about how there are certain plants and flowers that need the fire to regenerate. I went on a hike um, up on Mount Diablo a couple years ago after there was a fire on, on one side of that mountain and there was fires that hadn't, or uh, there was flowers that hadn't bloomed in decades, I believe, that because they need fire to germinate. Or, you know, you read now about how redwoods, the fire is good for redwood forests because it kind of clears out this undergrowth that mm -hmm. competes for them with water. And so right. even though it can be very tragic and very deadly, especially for humans, fire really is a part of, of the natural world. And this is really uh, a cycle that isn't unusual, even though, you know, we're confronting it um, through this lens of climate change, I think, which adds a whole new urgency and intensity to yeah. it. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, we learned at the time, I can't remember now exactly what species it is but they they uh, they need fire to break out of their seed you know the seeds mm -hmm. need fire in order to grow and so um, these areas it's so important to understand fire suppression and the effect that it has you know and yeah climate change fire suppression people building deep into the into the areas where they hadn't lived there hadn't been families before. Um, all of that is adding up to the, this kind of never-ending fire season that we're seeing right now. You lived through this tragedy almost 30 years ago. There's been thousands and thousands of people in California this year and in the last couple of years who have lost their homes and lost everything, lost family members, lost friends to the wildfires. What would you say to those people who these wounds are still so fresh? You've had so long to reflect on them. You wrote an entire book, a whole memoir, you know, kind of reflecting on this tragedy and, and how to recover from it. So do you have any thoughts to share with people who might be listening to this show who are still recovering from losing everything in the last couple of weeks or a couple of years? I would say be kind to yourself. Um, allow yourself time. It's not gonna happen quickly. Uh, rebuilding if you want to is gonna take time and you need to take stock of what you're your assets are, what your strengths are, um, know what your insurance was, you know, it's basic things like that. People have to, to rely on each other a lot uh, for, for resources, and, and I think there's safety in numbers. So if you go as a body to try to get something to happen with your city or your town or what used to be your city or your town, you're better off than individuals. So if you can band together with people, um, staying connected. And um, if, you, if you love where you live and where you live isn't safe, you've got some really big choices you have to make. Some of these decisions, none of your choices are good. And it's just a question of what's gonna be best for me and my family and what can I afford to do 
and how will I be prepared if I ever have to deal with this again. But I say, be kind to yourself and um, allow yourself to feel what you're going to feel. And there's just so many big feelings that come out of something like this. So there's loss, there's self-doubt. What could I have done differently? You know, why didn't anybody help me? I mean, there's all these things that people feel and that's just all going to come out. And none of it should be suppressed, I think. <laughs> One thing I will suggest to people that um, pay attention to your dreams because I went to a, um, a session at, at Alta Bates Hospital. People after the fire have been having rescue dreams, hero dreams. Like I went in and I stopped the fire or I saved that person that didn't make it out. And, and um, you're working out in your head, you know, like could I, should I, would I have? And then um, you end up at a place where you go, no, I, I really couldn't have it in my dream. I'm a hero. You know, in my dream, I saved the house. And, and I bet people are going to be going through all that stuff. And it's really good to be able to talk to other people about that and it'll give you a sort of sense of relief and, and to know that you're, you're really not alone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of East Bay Yesterday. I've been your host, Liam O'Donoghue. Once again, this episode is dedicated to all the brave firefighters and other first responders out there and also to everyone who lost their home or a loved one in that terrible 1991 fire. This episode would not have been possible without the support of my Patreon fans. Thank you so much to everyone who donates to help keep this show running. There's been a small but steady stream of new donors coming in over the past few months, and I'll be thanking all of you personally in an upcoming episode. If you want to support my ability to make new shows, go to eastbayyesterday.com and hit the donate link at the top of the page. And while you're there, I've got links to my social media so you can follow my updates on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And uh, just so you folks know, I would love to reach more people with this story. So if you could help me out by sharing this episode or just even telling a friend about it, I'd really appreciate that. Okay, you can subscribe to East Bay Yesterday on all the major podcast apps, including Spotify. And again, uh, if you appreciate the show, please leave a rating and a review. That helps. Music for this episode came from Justin Lee and Chris Zabriskie. The theme song music came from Anatech. Thanks again for listening. I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.